welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Manager of Virtual Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Ileana L. Peters, shareholder at Paulsonelli. Ileana believes good data privacy and security is fundamental to ensuring patients' trust in the healthcare system and helping healthcare clients succeed in an ever-changing landscape of threats to data security. She is recognized by the healthcare industry as a preeminent thinker and speaker on data privacy and security, particularly with regard to HIPAA, the High Tech Act, the 21st Century Cures Act, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, the Privacy Act, and emerging cybersecurity threats to health data. For over a decade, she has both developed health information privacy and security policy, including on emerging technologies and cyber threats for the Department of Health and Human Services, and enforced HIPAA regulations through spearheading multi-million dollar settlement agreements and civil money penalties pursuant to HIPAA. Ileana also focused on training individuals in both the public and private sector including compliance investigators, auditors, and state attorneys general, on HIPAA regulations and policy, and on good data privacy and security practices. As a CISSP, Ileana works hard to bridge the gap between legal requirements for the security of health data and security industry best practices so that clients can better understand data security issues and jargon. She is excited to bring her extensive experience drafting, implementing, and enforcing health privacy and security regulations and guidance to a practice that focuses on helping clients develop and implement good data privacy and security practices to avoid risk and helping clients prepare for and recover from emerging cyber threats. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Today, our team is turning the spotlight on Super Ninja Robert Connolly, Chief Executive Officer at Pinnacle. Robert says the ability to assist patients in obtaining outstanding ear, nose, and throat care by our providers is what he enjoys most about working at Pinnacle. Congratulations, Robert. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM, and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Ileana, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you and talk through the issues that we have today, specifically um, legal risk, associated with innovative data sharing projects. As you can imagine, we're seeing a lot of this in practice right now. I think there are a lot of discussions ongoing about these types of projects, and there is a lot of interest, both um, with private entities, but also with public entities, regulators, um, you know, all of us involved in the, in the industry here, both healthcare and otherwise, um, on these types of innovative data sharing projects. We are going to concentrate in this presentation on the healthcare sector um, 
and the data that is at issue in the healthcare sector generally. But I think these concepts are certainly applicable outside of the healthcare sector um, uh, with regard to complicated data sharing projects, sort of generally. Um, anytime we start talking through these data issues, there is application outside the healthcare sector. So just something to keep in mind as we have this conversation. Um, I appreciate your having me today, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, also, my contact information is included in these slides. So if any of you would like to follow up after the presentation, if you have any additional questions that we're not able to get to, please feel free to reach out. I'm happy to discuss um, and, uh, you know, regularly check my email, and this is my desk line. So please feel free to call, too. So let's get into the substance here. Um, obviously, we are living in a world today where healthcare is truly data-driven. Um, so much of what we do these days is based on leveraging data of all different types um, about the healthcare that we receive, or if we are, um, you know, beneficiaries, the insurance that we use, or if we're healthcare providers and health insurance companies, the information on the clients that we serve, patients and beneficiaries, trying to figure out not only how to improve treatment, um, how to conduct research, um, but also how to improve the system as a whole with regard to really important issues like population health, um, utilization review, improving costs, um, making sure that we're getting care to those individuals that need it without discrimination. All of these really important issues are data-driven. Um, and we have, you know, many different entities that are developing really innovative uh, applications and tools to help us with these important questions. Um, one of these things is our healthcare Internet of Things. Um, we have so many devices in our enterprises and outside of our enterprises, wearables, um, many devices nowadays are attached to the patient or implanted in a patient. And all of those different um, uh, devices may have risks. Um, there have been several different um, organizations, including other law firms, the government at the state and federal level, um, you know, blogs, uh, conversations about these risks. Um, this is part of our conversation today because all of these different things, um, these devices, applications, tools, are generating huge uh, amounts of data that we may be using as part of these uh, data sharing projects that we're working on. So very important to understand sort of what that looks like. Um, we could talk for a whole separate hour on issues related to Internet of Things, but I just wanted to remind everyone sort of where this data is being generated because that, uh, you know, uh, provides us with a framework to talk about risk. Um, the market, too, is very um, uh, fluid at the moment with regard to inter innovation, um, particularly things like artificial intelligence, um, you know, in addition to network devices, which we just talked about. There are many different tools out there that are based on artificial intelligence that generate large amounts of data. Um, some of those, the vast majority of them, involve human intervention. So there is a, a human being that's also working with the tool to generate the data, but there are some that aren't, that do not require human intervention. So it is really important to, again, remember where our data sources are, um, understand what that data looks like, um, to understand the risks to it, particularly when we're talking about the types of projects that we're going to discuss today, that is innovative data sharing projects. So again, these tools are incredibly helpful for addressing all of those problems that we've been talking about already, um, and that is, you know, improving uh, treatment, improving quality, improving safety, um, but also reducing costs, generating efficiencies. Um, these AI tools are used for all of those things, um, and in doing so, utilize and generate large amounts of data. Um, in our digital health market, um, you know, digital health 
is becoming much more of our norm than it used to be. Um, there was a quite, uh, you know, in my opinion, a somewhat slow movement to electronic data and um, digital health um, before the, the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, the adoption of digital health tools uh, for purposes of providing treatment and ensuring payment for that treatment has increased exponentially over the last few years. And again, what we're doing is generating large amounts of data related to treatment um, for many different conditions, um, as well as information about how we use services related to those conditions, uh, as well as, you know, how we bill related to those conditions. So the whole sort of ecosystem with regard to provision of healthcare and billing for that healthcare has changed significantly. Um, we also have um, different companies that may classically have not been thought of as healthcare providers who are doing much more work in this healthcare space for many different reasons, particularly involving data. Um, and it's important to really understand what those interactions look like, um, especially when we're talking about the issues that we have today, and that is specifically, again, these complicated data sharing um, uh, projects and agreements. So um, if you take anything away from our presentation today, I would keep this slide handy. Um, this is really sort of the crux of our conversation, and we'll dig into each one of these issues as we walk through the presentation, but this slide is really important when you consider these particular types of projects and the issues with these projects. So when we talk about these data sharing projects, and these take many different forms, as I've already said, um, they can be because you're generating data from devices or from AI tools or because you want to work with, um, you know, some kind of large data-driven company. Um, a lot of these are taking the form of research projects. So, obviously, research involving human subjects is complicated and has many different other legal requirements. So, just to put that on your radar. But when we're doing research, um, whether that's internal research involving um, uh, internal research involving, um, you know, different utilization and treatment um, of our services, um, or whether we're talking about development of new therapies, new drugs, new devices to perform treatment, whatever that research looks like, um, we have many, many different entities that are interested in undertaking that research with healthcare entities and obviously generating data as a result, um, sharing data, using data, maintaining data. So um, when we talk about these types of projects, whether, again, they're for research, whether they're for development of drugs, development of devices, um, utilization of services, whatever the underlying goal of the project is, they all have very similar risks given the data sharing that is involved. Um, and again, specifically, those are those are discussed initially on this slide. We're going to dig into them, but I wanted to just sort of give you an introduction here. So obviously, there are potential violations and enforcement of those violations pursuant to state, federal, and international law. And we'll talk about all those. But obviously, we're talking about uh, the Office for Civil Rights, the FTC, state attorneys general. Um, they all have jurisdiction to enforce these types of requirements and regularly do. So they're very interested in these types of agreements and these types of projects and the potential risks to patient privacy and data security involved. We also have contractual requirements. So it's really important to remember that where you generate the data, again, whether it's a device whether you're working with an insurance company, um, whether you're working with a federal government agency or a state agency, these can range from everything from private payers, large insurance companies to Medicare, Medicaid, um, other federal government agencies that are restricted by the Privacy Act. Um, all of these contractual requirements impact how you can do these data projects, particularly because they will likely put 
um, restrictions in place on how you can use certain types of data that you are receiving from another entity or originating for or on behalf of another entity. So, for example, if you receive claims data or if you interact with CMS about Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, that information is controlled by your agreement with Medicare and Medicaid. Those agreements are particularly prohibitive with regard to how you can use and disclose that data. So it's really important that you understand what your contractual requirements look like with regard to the data that you want to use and disclose, share, whatever the case may be with regard to the project you're working on. Um, there are also obviously significantly in increased risks of data breaches. Anytime we put large groups of data together, um, anytime we create data warehouses or registries, these are particularly at risk. Um, and uh, we need to be very careful about how we work with our vendors, um, particularly business associates from a HIPAA perspective, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. But again, this data can be at risk, and it's really important that we understand the risks to the data depending on the project that we're undertaking and that we implement good data security controls to try and reduce the risks. Um, uh, you know, chain of custody, uh, indemnification, insurance, these are all really important questions when we're working with vendors in these areas too, um, in order to make sure that we cover um, any risks associated with data breaches on the project. And finally, um, there's always the risk of reputational damage. Um, there have been several different projects that arguably uh, comply with all legal requirements at the state, federal, and international level, um, but that just don't sit right with the public or regulators. And to the extent there is public uh, uh, media coverage or a leakage about these types of projects, Often regulators will get involved, um, individual patients or beneficiaries may complain um, because they don't like the way a, a particular type of project looks involving their data. Again, could be perfectly legal or arguably legal, um, but the reputational issues involved can be quite significant um, because a particular patient or group of patients, um, you know, are, object to the way that data is being used or developed or shared. So um, again, let's address each one of these sort of on its own to have a, a better sense of what these risks look like. So starting with our HIPAA issues, um, obviously, you know, HIPAA applies to a certain um, specific set of entities, covered entities, um, and their business associates. And these are entities that participate in the health insurance uh, market. So if you're a healthcare provider um, that takes insurance or if you're a health insurance company that pays healthcare providers for healthcare services, you're covered by HIPAA. You're a HIPAA covered entity. And that's where we start. Um, HIPAA also applies to the vendors of those entities. So if you're um, a vendor that provides services to a healthcare entity that either takes insurance or provides insurance, for healthcare services, then you are also covered by HIPAA. Um, if you hold data that is identifiable, uh, then it is arguably protected health information covered by HIPAA. Um, this can get a bit complicated in terms of the analysis of what is protected health information depending on what you're doing with it as a covered entity or a business associate. But generally, if it relates to a particular person, and it's held by a HIPAA-covered entity or their business associate, it is considered by the regulators to be protected health information. This is a much broader concept than medical record information. There is a lot of confusion about this because uh, a lot of entities uh, think that, for example, a name alone is a PHI or social security number alone is not protected, um, and that's just not the case. All of those identifiers individually or in combination are protected by HIPAA because they are held by a HIPAA-covered entity or their business associate. So it's really important to remember that there doesn't have to be diagnostic information or a medical record number or insurance information attached 
to these identifiers to make it PHI. Uh, a phone number on its own is, in fact, protected by HIPAA. Um, so when we're dealing with these um, issues, you know, it, it becomes really incumbent on these covered entities and business associates to um, understand what the breadth of the requirements are with regard to this data, such that they can appropriately consider the risks and really understand how our legal requirements apply in these types of data sharing projects. And again, I've just uh, included some uh, examples of covered entities and business associates on this slide. Um, so you can really consider if you are a covered entity or a business associate, the type of data you hold and the types of projects that you're doing, or if you're working with one of those entities, what that looks like. Um, again, the general rule is that we can't disclose information that is identifiable in any way that isn't otherwise permitted by the law. Um, so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, unless we have consent, which is called a HIPAA authorization under HIPAA, we can't share information that isn't otherwise permitted by the, the law, by HIPAA. Um, and um, what that means for purposes of these innovative data sharing projects, particularly if we are considering remuneration or some kind of um, financial or other um, benefit as a result of a particular project, we have to use de-identified information. So again, we cannot sell, we cannot get remunerated for HIPAA data that is identifiable without the consent from the subject of the information, the patient or the beneficiary. So if we're going to enter into agreements that create benefits for us, that is, you know, either we get paid or we get uh, favorable licenses or uh, products or favorable service terms. All of that would be prohibited under HIPAA using identifiable information. So what we have to do is anonymize the data if that is what, if those are the types of projects that we want to undertake. This is a particularly hard thing to do in many cases. Um, our safe harbor requires removal of 18 identifiers, and that includes everything from names, addresses, phone numbers, social security numbers, to email addresses, IP addresses, um, dates of service, smaller than a year, so month and day, zip codes. Um, so Safe Harbor is difficult to get to. We can also work with an expert to try and determine whether there is low risk of identification of a certain data set. We can't make that determination ourselves. Only a statistical expert can do that. Um, but that's basically how we get to an, un an anonymized data that we can use in these remuneration um, agreements or projects. Um, this is generally how um, state and international regulators have been interpreting required anonymization as well. So again, even though this type of anonymization is specific to HIPAA, it is very often used as the default standard for state regulators and state legal requirements, as well as international regulators and international legal requirements. So again, we have to remove all of these identifiers alone and in combination in order to have de-identified information, or we have to work with an expert to determine whether or not there is risk if any of these identifiers remain. It's an either-or situation. Either all of these come out, including dates, internet protocol addresses, um, any account numbers, any zip codes, uh, full zip codes, all of that comes out, or we work with an expert to determine the risk to a particular data set. So again, even though that is sort of our federal law construct, um, much of that is applicable at the state level as well when we're doing these projects. And so, um, you know, I sort of wanted to walk you through recent state law developments uh, that put additional complications um, in place with regard to these types of data sharing projects. Now, there is, uh, just to let everyone know, efforts at the federal level to standardize uh, data sharing that may at some point um, uh, preempt some of these state law developments. 
so something to keep in mind. But at least for now, um, this is where we are. Um, for example, in California, we have the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA. Um, this provides additional requirements with regard to uh, consumer data. Again, we can't sell data. Um, the consumer has the right to uh, opt out of the sale of the data. Um, you know, how, how we use that data is particularly uh, constrained in California because of these protections. It's important to remember from a state law perspective that state law applies to resident data. So even if we sit in North Dakota, if we have California resident data and it's uh, a situation where we have 25 million in gross revenue or we buy, receive, or sell personal information of 50,000 or more California residents, then we're covered by this law and we have to comply with the CCPA requirements. So um, these state laws apply based on the information you hold for data subjects, not based on where you, the business, is located. This is particularly uh, complicated um, on the East Coast, for example, where you may sit in Virginia, that is your business is in Virginia, but you have patients or beneficiaries or consumers from Maryland, the District of Columbia, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, et cetera, um, you would arguably need to comply with all of the data requirements in all of those states because you hold the data for residents of all of those states. So really important to remember that this goes well beyond where you are located as a business and can significantly impact your ability to undertake these complicated projects. Um, Colorado similarly um, has uh, state law requirements with regard to additional controls for data. Again, these have to do with individual rights um, and um, you know data processing requirements. Uh, Virginia as well recently passed similar requirements to California and Colorado. Again, uh, specific individual rights and additional controls for data sharing. Um, and we have many other states that aren't far behind. So um, we, we do have to watch these very closely um, and make sure that we understand how the state requirements apply in any particular circumstance. Okay, so... Um, there are additional um, federal requirements as well. We wanted to remind you of those. Um, to the extent that you have made promises, for example, in your online privacy policy or your terms of use, um, you are held to those promises by the Federal Trade Commission. And the FTC has been very aggressive with regard to uh, appropriate data sharing pursuant to those promises that are made online to consumers when they give entities their data. So really important to remember that the FTC here too is interested in making sure that we use and disclose information only in the way that we promised the consumer we were going to do that, um, that we have robust security controls in place, that we do not sell data unless we specifically have told consumers that we will do so and have consent to do so. Um, so again, the, the way that we talk about how we will use data when we collect it from consumers significantly impacts how we can, in fact, undertake these types of projects and agreements related to these projects um, because it's important that we um, comply with the promises that we've made to consumers um, and uh, specifically in our privacy policies in terms of use. Um, again, the FTC is, uh, expects that we, uh, you know, undertake all of these important things. A reminder on this slide, too, that there are particular requirements related to minor information um, and additional federal law requirements in that respect as well um, with regard to parental consent. So important to keep all that in mind all that in mind as we are collecting data and figuring out how we want to undertake these data sharing projects. Okay, finally, with regard to our regulatory issues, we also have international requirements. 
Um, and these uh, are, you know, usually country by country, except with regard to, for example, GDPR, which is an EU initiative and applies across countries in the European Union. Um, again, th- these are very robust requirements that are applicable to uh, EU residents. Similarly, you would have um, requirements in other countries that would be applicable to residents of those countries. Um, you know, to the extent you collect that data. Now, again, there are jurisdictional issues. So, for example, with GDPR, you either have to have an office there, you have to be offering services, goods and services to EU residents. So this may not be applicable to you, but obviously something you would want to look closely at. We often see clients who think they're not subject to these international requirements. And when they do a closer look, and how they're gathering data and for what purposes, including particularly research, um, it turns out they are, in fact, covered by these regulations. For example, if you are recruiting research subjects in another country, you are arguably subject to those requirements in that country. A lot of our clients um, forget that they are doing international recruitment efforts when it comes to research projects, and um, that would thus subject them to these laws. So important to remember. Um, okay. So again, with GDPR compliant, we want to ensure um, that we understand again what uh, our compliance requirements are. Are we subject to GDPR? Are we subject to other international requirements? And how that will affect us in these data sharing projects that we're undertaking. So um, with regard to our data sharing agreements themselves, um, you know, what are the considerations that we need to talk through here? Um, and, you know, there are just some of the considerations on this slide. We've already sort of talked through the legal issues, um, uh, you know, from an inter- introductory standpoint. But really what we need to dig into when we start talking about these types of agreements themselves and how we're going to, for example, de-identify information. So, again, we can't sell identifiable information. Um, We can't monetize that information in any way without the consent of the data subject, the patient, or the beneficiary. Um, So we often have to default to de-identification or anonymization um, for these types of projects because there is some benefit that is going to accrue to us as a result of sharing data, providing data to a third party. If that is the case, um, you know, really understanding how the anonymization is going to be undertaken and by whom uh, is an important part of the conversation. Because at the end of the day, um, the entity that arguably has liability for anonymizing or de-identifying the data is the data owner. That is the originator of the data. So if you hand your data to a vendor and you let them anonymize the data and they do it incorrectly, you are liable for that. They are not liable for that, except potentially under contract. But you are liable, for example, from a HIPAA perspective, because it is ultimately you, the HIPAA-covered entity, the data owner, the data originator, that is responsible for ensuring that the data is anonymized correctly and is not re-identified. That's the other important issue here, is that many times, when we work with vendors to facilitate these projects, uh, we don't have a good idea of the downstream uses of that de-identified or anonymized data. It is possible in many of these cases that we could be sharing data with entities that actually have data sets that would allow them to re-identify the data. Um, And that is obviously prohibited um, under the federal regulations as well. So, we not only have to make sure that the data is anonymized or de-identified in a way that complies with the law to begin with, we also have to ensure that downstream use of that anonymized data does not result in re-identification of the data. Um, And so it's really important that we understand how this is going to be undertaken and how we are going to ensure that the data is not re-identified. And if it is, we receive immediate notice um, and have remedies associated with that re-identification. Again, as I talked about earlier, um, 
complying with the safe harbor requirements is often difficult. Um, in other words, um, many times we can't get to, um, you know, a usable data set by removing all of those 18 identifiers because maybe we need dates or um, maybe we need zip codes, for example. Um, so we would work with an expert to get a report about uh, you know, what our risk is depending on a, a certain data set and the information that remains in that data set. Um, if we use that expert again, um, you know, the expert can in fact, uh, review both data sets, business processes for generating data sets, um, tools that we're using to generate data sets as long uh, as, of course, the parameters don't change. Um, but um, in terms of who we are relying on as an expert, that is a very important factor, and who gets the expert report is an important factor as well. So these are issues that have to be addressed um, as we are working through these draft agreements, as we're negotiating agreements with um, vendors for these types of projects as well. So, um, Generally, as I said before, the, one of the major factors that we're dealing with is a prohibition on the sale of identifiable information. So direct or indirect remuneration is considered a sale. Um, generally, we have to have consent if we're going to sell data, um, if it's identifiable, again. So there are state law requirements for that consent, there are federal law requirements for that consent, and there are international requirements for that consent. So if we have identifiable data for particular data subjects, we cannot sell that data. We can't get any direct or indirect remuneration, services, favorable license terms, um, tools, uh, any remuneration is considered a sale and um, would be prohibited without a consent from the data subject. That's really important that, um, you know, these issues are considered because often, you know, um, entities will negotiate favorable license deals as a result of cooperation on development of a particular application or tool and, and don't realize that that really um, implicates the prohibitions on sale of data um, and probably should be, uh, well, definitely should be approached in a different way. Um, there are certainly ways to work out those agreements, but it's not easy, and those remuneration issues must be addressed in order to not only protect the privacy of the consumer, but also, um, you know, negate any particular legal um, liability that might attach. So, um, you know, we very often see many different types of requests for de-identified data, um, another issue, as uh, we've already talked through sort of what the identification might look like, we're, you know, when we're talking about sale or remuneration, um, if we decide that's where we want to um, proceed, then we need to use de-identified or anonymized data. Uh, if we do that, then there are obviously value propositions associated with those um, efforts. So to the extent we're going to use the identified data, um, we create the identified data for a particular project, all of those, uh, you know, issues take time to address. The data itself is very valuable, even if it is de-identified or anonymized. And wa walking through with our um, business partners, our vendors or other business partners as part of these projects, with regard to what the value is, what the license for that data looks like, what are the controls we expect them to put in place, what are the guardrails that we think should be negotiated with regard to any data set as part of these projects and agreements. Um, that's really key to these conversations. Again, you know, what the, what is the data? What does the value of that data look like and how do we want our business partner, whether it's a vendor or other business partner, to um, protect that data that we have generated um, as part of the project that we're working with them on. 
So again, um, you know, these are all issues that we have to address as we're having those conversations. Uh, what is our relationship with, with the buyer, the business partner look like? Will we have additional control downstream on how they use the data? What data privacy and security requirements are they going to put in place? Have we valued the data correctly? How are they going to use that data downstream? What are our contractual protections in terms of not only requiring them to protect the data when we um, provide it to them, but um, if something goes wrong, um, if they re-identify the data, if they use it in a way that's not contemplated, if there's some kind of data breach, what are our protections uh, in terms of the business partner and uh, the agreements that we put in place? Data ownership is a big part of this conversation as well. Um, and, you know, again, we're working from the understanding that the originator of the data um, that is the HIPAA-covered entity or the healthcare entity involved in originating that data. Again, we've talked about how that may happen. Um, you know, devices, networked devices, AI tools and applications, treatment relationships, you know, all of those generate this data. Um, and arguably, the data owner, the data originator is the owner of that data. Um, for purposes of these relationships as well. So when we're talking about how we own data that's collected, um, you know, all of these issues come into play. Um, downstream or derivative uses of the data may implicate our ownership. So we need to be very careful about how we interact with our business partners, how we interact with our vendors with regard to this data, that we have a really good understanding of what they are doing with the data um, to understand what our ownership rights continue to look like, such that obviously we can um, appropriately license that data, that we can appropriately um, protect the data, um, and that we understand how our liability flows related to that data once we have provided it outside to a third party. Um, so again, there are some, you know, interesting nuances here with regard to medical records ownership. Um, there are important research issues as well, particularly if we're working on human subjects research, um, including with regard to institutional review boards. Um, and, you know, obviously the website information. Um, we talked a little bit about that earlier with regard to FTC jurisdiction. But um, it also has implications for our ownership um, and licensing of the data that we collect through our websites and from consumers. So I think I want to just talk through um, some additional issues here when we have these uh, these data rights and review um, the slides that we've been talking about, particularly with regard to um, the original slide on um you know, what our uh, real risks look like. I'm going to go back to that slide so we can have it in front of us when we have this conversation. Um, so again, we talked through regulatory issues, federal, state, and international. We talked about anonymization of data, um, and we talked about um, what are the major issues in negotiating agreements. But again, I wanted to go back to this particular slide to make sure that we understand what this looks like, um, you know, from the beginning um, as we're working through these relationships. So again, the the place where we're seeing these data sharing agreements most often is with regard to um, innovative and uh, complicated uh, research projects. And when I use the term research, I mean both um, internal research to an entity, that is uh, research that the entity is, is doing involving its own data, um, research and development related to new products, services, and devices that includes, um, you know, different types of software applications, uh, different types of mobile devices, different types of therapeutic devices, and it can also mean human subjects research in the classical sense. That is um, research that is for purposes of new interventions or treatments, drugs and devices 
that may impact the health of individuals. Um, and, you know, obviously have to go through uh, institutional review board approval, informed consent from those research subjects, et cetera. So when I use research, I mean that in sort of a, um, a much more broad sense than just with regard to a human subjects research project. There are a lot of research and development projects that are ongoing at entities of all different types. Um, you know, again, healthcare providers, health insurance companies, but also entities that sit outside the HIPAA space um, and undertake research with regard to, um, you know, utilization, um, development of new applications and devices. Um, and these can be, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers, device manufacturers, um, large internet-based companies. Um, social media companies of all types. They are all very interested in these types of projects that generate um, and or use data um, to, again, evaluate uh, healthcare treatment, utilization of services, and to develop um, new products and services, um, and particularly innovative products and services. So when we talk about these data projects, they have many, many different ramifications, both with regard to, you know, treatment for patients and and many other um, issues, usually with regard to development of new products or services, um, software being one of those and devices, particularly another. So when we're talking about these projects, they can make, they can take many, many different forms. Um, and it's really important that you have a team that can recognize this type of project when it comes across your desk. So, um, you know, you may have a, a, a regular contractual procurement process and someone offers to pay you, you know, a, a lot of money for um, a particular participation in a particular type of project. And the business folks get very excited and, and sign that um, agreement without um, running it by legal or anyone else. Obviously, that is the exact situation we want to avoid because um, while our business folks may have a really good understanding of what the practical applications may be of a particular project, they may not and probably don't have a robust understanding of all of the risks that we've been talking about here. Um, and we'll walk through those again here in a minute um, from this slide. So again, what we want to do is make sure that as these types of projects become increasingly common, um, and as these agreements start to circulate more, we have as an entity an appropriate process to uh, identify and review these types of projects and agreements such that we um, can ensure that we're moving forward in the correct way. That is, some of these projects are absolutely fantastic opportunities, not only for the entities involved, but really have really important implications for the healthcare industry and the services and treatment that we provide. So, you know, some of this research um, could be, you know, industry changing um, in, in terms of developments of new drugs, devices, or services, um, and um, could be particularly important. Um, from a, a financial standpoint in terms of, you know, helping entities uh, make money to provide additional services for patients and beneficiaries. So this is all really important work, um, but we need to make sure that our teams are familiar with the risks such that, again, they can identify these projects when they come in the door, that they can appropriately escalate the agreements um, to uh, to legal services, to compliance, whoever that is, to take a closer look at the um, particular provisions of any contract involved with this project, um, such that we can ensure that the guardrails are in place, that there are appropriate protections for patients, for beneficiaries, for consumers, um, and that we've, um, you know, ensured that our um, our responsibilities as good data stewards are addressed in those agreements. So again, um, in terms of review, I wanted to just emphasize exactly what we're looking for in these projects 
um, and how these uh, these issues would impact those agreements. Any agreements that we would develop, uh, many times there are multiple agreements and not just one to undertake these types of projects. Um, so again, what we'll want to do is ensure that we have addressed um, state, federal, and international requirements, particularly with regard to consumer consent that is necessary for sale of data, both indirect and direct remuneration. So any benefit to us as a result of sharing data um, will implicate sale of data, and we need consent if that data is identifiable to an individual. Um, if that data is not identifiable to an individual, then we need to make sure we understand how the de-identification or the anonymization of that data is being undertaken, such that, again, we can comply with those legal requirements at all levels um, and ensure that we don't have privacy implications and don't need consent for the data subjects um, to move forward with that anonymized data. Again, we talked um, quite a bit about all of the risks associated with anonymization and de-identification, and it's really important that we understand what that looks like so that we can build that into these agreements. Um, again, if we're going to do that ourselves um, or if we're going to use a vendor to help us uh, aggregate and de-identify or anonymize data, what that looks like, and then um, how we're going to share that de-identified or anonymized data um, with other parties and what the controls will be with regard to that sharing of data. We also want to remember that in many cases, our other contractual requirements may have ramifications for how we can use this data in the first place. So again, if we have um, Medicare, Medicaid claims data, if we're working with Medicare and Medicaid on beneficiary issues, um, there can be significant limitations on how we use that data, just in this example. So we want to ensure that any registry, any data warehouse, any aggregated data set that we are putting together only includes data for individuals that we can, in fact, aggregate and use in that way. Um, so ha having an understanding of what our other contractual requirements are separate and apart from state, federal, and international legal requirements is really important for purposes of these types of big data projects. Um, we can't use a lot of that data in the way that we might want to for aggregated research, utilization review, population health, et cetera, not because of legal requirements in the law, but because of contractual requirements in our contracts. So really important to consider that issue as well. Um, similarly, and we've talked about this um, uh, already too, but um, any time we aggregate data into large data sets for these types of projects, um, again, data warehouses, data lakes, registries, um, big data sets of aggregated data, um, that data becomes increasingly at risk. Um, anytime uh, a threat actor is able to leverage large amounts of data, um, they are going to look to do so because it's much more lucrative for them as a threat actor to find, uh, you know, a quality data source that has a lot of data in one place than having to sift through data themselves. So obviously, we want to ensure that we have really robust data security controls ourselves on this data when we're putting these data sets together, but also that we require our business partners to do the same. Um, because anytime we're going to share data, whether it's identifiable data or anonymized data, there is significant risk to these large um, data sets. And we want to ensure that we have those risks covered and considered from a data security perspective, because obviously that can implicate data breach requirements, all 50 states and territories have those federal data breach requirements um, under uh, HHS, FTC, and other federal requirements, and then, of course, at the international level as well. So we want to make sure that we sufficiently protect this data to avoid the risks of data breach. And finally, we want to really think through how these projects, how these agreements look to the public. 
um, you know, I have a colleague that refers to the grandmother test. If we described a project to her grandmother, how would her grandmother feel about this project? Um, because that can really influence how we undertake this project. Not because it's a legal issue, not because it's a contractual issue, but because it's a reputational issue. Um, because we have a responsibility to consider how our data subjects, how our patients, how the beneficiaries, how the consumers that we work with are going to uh, um, react to a particular data project involving their data. Um, is this a situation where we may want to get consent anyway? Um, to the extent we can build consent into a particular process, that may be the best option for some of these projects because we want to ensure that the consumer understands exactly what we're doing with their data and why, um, and we think it's important to have that conversation with the consumer. So again, um, you know, all of these really important issues are part of these projects that we're undertaking. It's a lot of information, but I hope this helps at least give you a sense for what we're looking at and um, why these questions are so important to discuss. Okay, thank you so much, Ileana. This has been a really wonderful presentation. We just have a few questions. First question we had was, what are the most important risks to consider in innovative data sharing projects? Right. As Great question. As we've been discussing, I think the most important risks um, are the risks associated with how the business partners that you're working with are going to use your data. So at the end of the day, you know, making sure that we understand those data ownership and licensure issues, um, particularly with regard to the type of data that we're using for any particular project, um, so that we can ensure the right controls for that data. So again, we want to make sure that um, you know, we appropriately take care of that data, but that's really less of a risk in these projects because, you know, arguably we can control how we use our own data. It's really about when we share that data with business partners, um, how we do our best to make clear to those business partners how we expect them to use and share our data and how we expect them to protect it. So again, it's about making sure they understand our ownership of the data, what the license to the data looks like for purposes of a particular project, and how they're going to um, protect the data as they hold it. Um, and, and I would say that's the largest risk, is really when we share that data outside of our own institution. Right. Can you explain what some of those risks are, what happens or some of those greatest risks are once they might start to go outside of your own entity? Sure, sure. Yeah. As we talked about, you know, I think one of the biggest risks is data breach. Obviously, if we don't have a good, um, you know, if we don't have a good data part or data partner, good business partner that that is um, you know, as invested in protecting that data as we are um, and doesn't have robust security controls for that data, uh, we could very easily have a data breach um, because, you know, it's likely that they are a target for threat actors because they probably do have a lot of data for a, different, a lot of different entities. Um, the other issue is they could also sell our data um, and, and we could ultimately be liable for that because we handed over our data to an entity that then sold it. Um, without consent of the individuals. Um, we could also have an issue with, uh, like I said, re-identification. So they could, um, you know, if it's anonymized data, they could sell it to an entity, um, which would arguably be permitted because it's anonymized, and then that entity could re-identify it um, because we can't control how they do that. Um, so these are all serious risks associated with working with these business partners. Um, if we don't have good controls built into our contracts that says specifically, you know, how they can use the data, how they can disclose the data, and the data security, data security controls that we expect them to put in place um, in their institution to protect the data. What do you mean when you're saying that they re-identify it? What are they doing? Right. So... We could remove all of those 18 identifiers from the data, or we could create, for example, what's called synthetic data, that is data that is um, similar to an original data set, but not 
the original data set. Um, or we could remove certain identifiers and not others that we, in a way that we believe, uh, based on an expert opinion, um, does not allow for an individual to be um, identified. Um, and then we could give it to a vendor and the vendor could negotiate, for example, with a very large um, internet-based data company or an internet service provider or some someone who has a very large amounts of data. Um, and based on the remaining um, uh, items in that data set, whatever that is, that could be, let's say, a type of prescription drug that someone is, is taking, um, a certain provider, a certain type of service that they're um, getting for purposes of treatment, um, you know, a certain state that they're located in. Um, in combination, um, it's possible that, that someone else could have a data set that includes enough identifiers that overlap with our de-identified data such that they can re-identify it. That is, they can identify the individual for whom it belongs. So when we disclose it, it may not be clear that it's Ileana's data, but when it goes to another um, entity, they may know enough about Ileana to um, re-identify it and, and make, it, make it clear to them that that's actually Ileana. Um, a good example of this was when um, HHS was working on the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Um, there were discussions about the identifiability of genetic data um, and whether or not it could be de-identified. The National Institutes for Health, NIH, had genetic databases on its website. NIH is not a HIPAA-covered entity, to be clear, um, but they provided these uh, genetic databases for purposes of research um, for, for different entities that were doing genetic research. And they believed the information that they had online was not identifiable because it had all identifiers for any particular individuals removed from it. Um, so it was very purely genetic information. Um, unfortunately, it was discovered that a researcher cross-referenced um, at least one of these databases, and, and this was obviously some time ago, um, cross-referenced one of these NIH databases with a publicly available criminal database and was able to identify um, uh, convicted uh, felons as a result of the data provided between the two databases. Um, and so that is the kind of re-identification problem that we would, um, you know, really want to avoid. Um, we don't want um, uh, any entity to attempt to figure out who the data belongs to. Okay, yeah, now I understand exactly. So if you're doing, for example, research on human subjects, for example, obviously you would redact who those subjects were, but obviously I see how you could cross-connect the information and find out exactly who they are if you had the right information. Let's do one other question. Should entities train their staff on these risks and issues? Sure, sure. Um, I think the short answer is yes, but I don't think this is the kind of training that everyone needs to this level, right? Um, I mean, I think there are certain folks in every institution, legal and compliance, that need this level of training. Um, but otherwise, we need our business folks, our marketing folks, um, you know, really anyone who has contact with business partners and vendors who may propose these types of projects to understand what these projects look like and where the risks are from a general sense. So they can appropriately identify this type of project and bring it to the folks that really need to take a closer look at it. So, you know, so we wouldn't expect um, someone who is, you know, out in the community working with business partners, um, you know, to really know the nuances here, but we would want them to, to be the kind of employee that says, oh, you know what? I think this is one of those complicated data sharing projects. I probably need to work with legal or compliance on this one um, so that they're escalated appropriately, not so that everybody has to keep this information handy, but so that they have, you know, enough knowledge and understanding of how risky this is for our organization such that they can say, oh, yeah, this is one of those data sharing projects. 
I need to be sure to escalate this as soon as possible so that we can have legal and compliance look at this so we can take advantage of this fantastic opportunity in the right way. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much, Ileana. Did you have any other words of advice or things that you had thought of during the presentation that you didn't bring up at the time? I don't think so. I just, you know, wanted to say thank you for having me and that I absolutely understand this is a really complicated area of um, current legal issues. And so um, I hope that individuals will uh, take a little bit of time to, to, you know, walk this through with their teams, but of course um, are, are free to get in touch if they have any additional questions. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Well, we really appreciate having you here today. Love having you as one of our presenters and speakers. So thank you so much, Ileana. Thanks for having me. Yes. Attendees also, we really appreciate you attending and for your support. So please use the contact information that you find in the slides. Don't forget you can download those. If you think of questions later on, send us those and we'll forward them on to Ileana. Please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.